So my talk is Transitional Legitimacy, a Framework for Theorizing Structural Racism. So I'll start the talk by talking about what are some motivating um, ideas behind this talk. The first is that structural racism, although it's often thought about in terms of justice and how it is an injustice, also undermines legitimacy of political institutions. Legitimacy refers to a political entity's right to rule, whereas justice concerns whether that rule is exercised in keeping with what subjects are owed. So legitimacy makes a different but weaker demand than justice, but it's also a prior demand to justice for an institution has to be legitimate before it can even exercise its right to rule. And then there's a the question of whether or not it's exercising that right to rule justly. So I think of legitimacy as not necessarily requiring justice, even though full and perfect justice may itself require legitimacy. Now, in political philosophy, there's a lot of discussions about theories of justice, and there's a lot of critique about how current theories of justice are overly idealized. And these critiques are sort of critiques from within what's known as non-ideal theory. Now, another motivation behind my talk is that this non-ideal critique also should be directed towards theories of legitimacy, which are themselves, I think, overly idealized. Charles Mills has a useful explanation of what ideal theory involves and why it is different from non-ideal theory. So he says that what distinguishes ideal theory is the reliance on idealization to the exclusion or at least marginalization of the actual. Ideal theory either tacitly represents the actual as a simple deviation from the ideal, not worth theorizing in its own right, or claims that starting from the ideal is at least the best way of realizing it. So in this talk, I'll go on to consider different theories of legitimacy and show how they themselves are overly idealized. They don't pay enough attention to actual non-ideal circumstances of oppression, exploitation, and domination. Now, a third sort of motivation behind this talk is to think about transitional justice as an analogy to my concept of transitional legitimacy. And if we care about non-ideal theory, then a useful concept to engage with is transitional justice, because that itself is a non-ideal concept. Theorists of transitional justice ask the question, what does justice require in the aftermath of authoritarianism, conflict, war, large-scale human rights abuses, etc.? So good examples in which transitional justice was used and theorized include Germany after World War II, also South Africa post-apartheid. Transitional know. justice also has useful measures. Um, okay, reduce the panel. I'm not sure what that means, reducing the panel to the next slide. Uh, no, sorry. Uh on this uh, on the screen, we can see your notes. Oh, okay. And if I I'll try it again and, and try sharing again and see if it'll work.
Perfect. No. Sorry. And then, does do you see my notes still? That's perfect. Okay. Um, so another reason to look at transitional justice is that it provides a useful slate of measures for thinking about how to deal with cases um, in which um, you want to transition away from conflict, authoritarianism, et cetera. So there's a lot of discussion within the transitional justice literature about trials, truth and reconciliation commissions, apologies, amnesties, reparations, new constitutions, other kinds of measures that if you're concerned about legitimacy, you might also be interested in. So those are sort of the three motivations behind the talk. One is thinking about how structural racism is itself illegitimate and not just unjust. Thinking about how theories of legitimacy themselves are overly idealized, not just theories of justice. And then finally, sort of thinking about an analogy to transitional justice. So I'll move next to consider uh, different theories of legitimacy and think about how in different ways they're overly idealized. Now, one very popular theory is consent theories of legitimacy. John Locke, who's shown in the top right corner, was a famous proponent of consent theories. And he argued that in order for a state to be legitimate, its members need to consent to that political authority of the state. Um, one well-known problem, of course, with this kind of theory is that no state or political institution has ever enjoyed the unanimous consent of all its members. Uh, now, one way to think about this objection is that it's an objection from within non-ideal theory. It's an objection that consent theories don't pay attention to how actual societies operate, where not everyone is able to consent. Another sort of related objection is that consent theories adopt an overly idealized conception of society as a voluntary scheme uh, between atomistic individuals. If you think about sort of the naturalization oaths that you that um, states often have um, new citizens make, this is the kind of idea that people voluntarily agree to become members of society. But of course, this isn't actually the case. People are born into society and politics fundamentally is not about how to structure relations between members who aren't already related to one another, um, but it is about how to structure relations between people even when consent might be lacking. Now, a second theory of legitimacy is John Rawls's liberal principle of legitimacy. Um, and according to John Rawls, he says that political power is proper or legitimate if the constitutions and the essentials of that constitutions are such that all citizens as free and equal may reasonably be expected to endorse in the light of principles and ideals accept acceptable to their common human reason. Now, one problem with this is that John Rawls himself self-admittedly operated from within ideal theory. So he assumes a well-ordered society where there's a basic structure that's publicly known to be just and everyone accepts the same principle of justice. And also citizens have a normally effective sense of justice and generally comply with society's basic institutions. Now, of course, all these assumptions sort of will provide for uh, reasonable consensus on the cheap as it were. If the basic structure of society is already just and citizens all already agree to the same principle of justice, then of course, 
they're going to agree that the Constitution is reasonable and can be, and they can endorse it reasonably. Um, but of course, actual societies aren't well ordered in the sense that John Rawls outlines. So it's not clear that this uh, this theory of legitimacy is able to apply to non-ideal circumstances. A third theory is a theory of um, that I call minimalist human rights theories. According to these theories, a state is just if it protects the basic human rights of its citizens. One problem with this theory is it's not clear why the threshold of legitimacy stops short at the protection of basic human rights. Why, does, why doesn't legitimacy require even more above and beyond just the basic human rights? Um, more to the point, I think, is the fact that human rights theories themselves are too thin and inadequate to think about systems of oppression and domination. When we theorize oppression and domination, we don't just rely on basic human rights. Obviously, violations of basic human rights is important to consider when you're thinking about oppression, but that's not all that there is that's at stake. Related to this is the fact that human rights theories generally focus on the here and now. They focus on how political institutions function and perform currently, but they don't really look at any backwards looking considerations about how to address past or enduring injustices. Not that human rights as a concept couldn't do so, but current theories that are minimalist human rights theories of legitimacy do not do so. So in contrast to um, a consent theory, a Rawlsian theory, and a minimalist human rights theories, I prefer democratic theories of legitimacy. Um, one big reason why democratic theories of legitimacy are preferable is because they do take seriously non-ideal circumstances where there is disagreement between citizens because of different interests, cognitive bias, fallibility, etc. So according to democratic theories of legitimacy, a state or political institution is legitimate if the equal right of all its members to politically participate in the decision-making of the institutions that actually rule over them exists and is protected. But democratic theories of legitimacy still have a problem as they currently stand. They don't tell us how to realize democracy under non-ideal circumstances. So theorists who actually think about democratic legitimacy are very clear about this. For example, Alan Buchanan, he argues that democracy is required for legitimacy, but only when democratic institutions are feasible or possible. But what about non-ideal circumstances where democratic institutions may not be feasible or may not be possible? His theory is silent about how to bring those institutions into existence. So according to his theory, if it really is not feasible for there to be a democracy, then it seems legitimacy would not require democracy. Now, similarly, Thomas Cristiano says that a reasonably just state is a precondition for democratic legitimacy. Now, what does it mean for a state to be reasonably just? And how do you bring about a reasonably just state such that there can be democratic legitimacy? The theory itself is silent on this. So I think democratic theories of legitimacy do a better job than other theories of legitimacy, but uh, in terms of paying attention to non-ideal circumstances. But the theory by themselves is insufficient. 
And this is sort of a problem, I think, just generally with theories of legitimacy, because theories of legitimacy focus on the conditions that constitute legitimacy, but they're not worried about what it takes to realize or bring about legitimacy. For that, I think we need to rely on concepts, theories beyond just theories of legitimacy. And so because of this, I think that we need a concept of transitional legitimacy. Now to sort of get a grip on this concept of transitional legitimacy, I draw an analogy to transitional justice. Uh, transitional justice is often distinguished by theorists in terms of its distinctive problem and also its distinctive circumstances. So the problem of transitional justice is, as Michael Buckley says, how can society emerge from a history of repression and large-scale abuse in a manner that improves the likelihood of it successfully transitioning to a civil society or a society characterized by peace, social unity, and the rule of law? Likewise, I think that we can have a distinctive problem of transitional legitimacy to help to map out this concept. The problem of transitional legitimacy is distinct from what theories of legitimacy by themselves ask. Legitimacy is just about the conditions that constitute legitimate political institutions. Whereas a problem of transitional legitimacy is how to realize or bring about legitimate political institutions, especially from within ill-ordered societies, from within non-ideal circumstances. So in addition to identifying the problem of transitional legitimacy, we can also identify the circumstances of transitional legitimacy. Again, we can draw an analogy to transitional justice. Theorists often point to the circumstances of transitional justice. And primarily they think of transitional justice as applying to societies that are emerging from conflict, systematic human rights violations, et cetera. Colleen Murphy has usefully identified four circumstances of transitional justice. And she juxtaposes these circumstances to circumstances of stable democracies. So in transitional justice, one of the circumstances is pervasive structural inequality. In stable democracies where transitional justice doesn't apply, there is only limited structural inequality. In transitional justice, there's normalized collective and political wrongdoing. In stable democracies, there's individual and personal wrongdoing. In transitional justice, there's serious existential uncertainty as opposed to minor existential uncertainty. And there's fundamental uncertainty about authority as opposed to narrow uncertainty about authority. So for Colleen Murphy and other transitional justice theorists, Transitional justice as a concept doesn't apply to stable democracies, generally Western democracies, such as the United States, such as Canada. I take the circumstances of transitional legitimacy to be broader than those of transitional justice, or at least the paradigmatic circumstances of transitional justice. So I take the circumstances of transitional legitimacy to be ill or societies in general that are marked by oppression, domination, exploitation, past and enduring injustices. So stable democracies and settler states, even if they do not qualify as circumstances of transitional justice, may still be 
a circumstance where transitional legitimacy may apply. Because even if they're a stable democracy, they may still have systems of oppression that are in place. They may still have systems of past injustice and during justice that need to be rectified in order for that state and that political institution to become legitimate. Now, some theorists in the transitional justice literature have moved beyond just thinking about paradigmatic post-conflict, post-war cases. And they argue that we should apply the framework of transitional justice beyond these kinds of paradigmatic cases to think about racial inequality, colonial injustices, other kinds of wrongdoing. Um, and they argue that these kinds of cases also exhibit features of transitional politics. Now there's precedent in actuality of this kind of idea taking place. So if you look at Canada, there's a Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada uh, for residential school survivors. And then in the US, there was the Maine Wabanaki State Child Welfare Truth and Reconciliation Commission that was responding to the adoption of Wabanaki children in white homes. So these two Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commissions, it, you can think about them as instances where measures of transitional justice were used in non-paradigmatic cases, non-paradigmatic circumstances of settler colonial states that were stable democracies. Um, but of course, these Truth and Reconciliation Commissions were primarily focused on injustices against indigenous peoples, colonialism. They weren't focused on structural racism against African-Americans, which is what I will go on to consider here when I'm applying the, um, my concept of transitional legitimacy. Other theorists um, who are working within transitional justice worry about this kind of application of transitional justice to these non-paradigmatic cases. And their worry is primarily about how if you apply the concept of transitional justice too widely, then you might lose what's distinctive about transitional politics in general. Um, I sort of don't have a stake in that debate as to whether or not applying transitional justice too widely might lose what's distinctive about transition, but it does raise this question about what is transition? What does the concept of transition do for us? So that's kind of what I want to talk about next. I think we can distinguish between the descriptive sense of transition with the normative sense of transition. The descriptive sense of transition is the question of how exactly should we characterize features of transitional society? Um, and on the one hand, you have people who want to focus on paradigmatic post-conflict societies that are emerging um, from war, human rights abuses, where there's going to be radical and exceptional political change. That's sort of important for transition. On the other hand, you have theorists who think a more nuanced understanding of transition is sometimes useful. Maybe it's subtle, more gradual, it's incomplete. I myself don't have a stake again in this debate about how we understand transitional justice. My sort of, uh, my sort of question is more about transitional legitimacy. And for my purposes, I think that in, in the concept of transitional legitimacy, we should be ecumenical. We should think about all these different kinds of circumstances. And depending on where, what case we're thinking about, we might want to be on one end of the spectrum or the other. So I don't worry so much about whether or not we need to be on one end of the spectrum. 
Um, because of this kind of thought, I think that transition doesn't just imply a temporary phase between widespread conflict and peaceful, stable democracy. And one important reason to think that transition isn't just about this short-lived period between conflict and stability is that systems of oppression themselves are very long-lasting and they themselves have stabilizing dynamics at play, right? That's one reason why it's sometimes difficult to think about paradigmatic Western democracies as themselves potentially illegitimate because of the long and enduring systems of oppression, racism, colonialism that might still be present in those societies, right? The systems themselves have the stabilizing dynamic to them. And so in addition to the descriptive sense of transition, I think there's the normative sense of transition. And that is the question of how to move toward or realize the value of justice or legitimacy from within non-ideal circumstances. I think that this normative sense of transition plays a very useful theoretical role. The first is it introduces a temporal dimension into our thinking that links both backward looking concerns with forward looking concerns. And it calls on us to address past wrongdoing, even though we have an eye towards the future in terms of how to realize certain ideals, whether it's justice or legitimacy. And additionally, transition focuses our attention on injustice, on illegitimacy. And so it guards against a tendency to see Western democracies as already having realized some endpoint of justice or legitimacy. So the map that you see behind this slide, which I'll pull up more clearly here, is a map that was made by Freedom House that provides a metric for which states are free and which states are not free. Right? So states that are green are free, states that are purple are not free, and then states that are yellow are partly free. Now, of course, I don't really have any qualms about whether or not we ought to use you know, quantitative metrics in political science to sort of make these kinds of discriminations. But I do want to say as a philosopher that we should guard against a tendency to say, well, just because these states are free or free by some kind of quantitative metric that has worked out in more detail by Freedom House, just because they're green, so to speak, doesn't mean that they're legitimate in, in every way. It doesn't mean they, they're not they don't still have systems of oppression in place, past injustices of racism that need to be addressed. So the concept of transitional legitimacy, especially the normative sense of transition itself, I think helps to guard, guard us against that tendency. So now that I've talked about the problem of transitional legitimacy, the circumstances of transitional legitimacy, especially as an analogy to transitional justice, we can think about the content of transitional legitimacy. And by the content of transitional legitimacy, I mean the measures that are required to realize legitimate political institutions from within ill-ordered societies. The content of transitional legitimacy is going to vary from society to society. And this is as it should be, because each society might have different uh, structures, systems in place, different histories of oppression that are in place. And there might need to be different measures to rectify those injustices in order for that society to become legitimate. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we need to lapse into a radical contextualism 
about the content of transitional legitimacy. Because after all, systems of oppression often share features across different contexts. And so we can theorize more abstractly, more broadly about what the content of transitional legitimacy requires. Now, I do not put forward a comprehensive, fully general theory of transitional legitimacy in this talk. My goal is primarily to introduce this concept and sort of show how it's plausible. Um, even if you have worries about whether or not we can have this all-encompassing comprehensive theory of transitional legitimacy, and I must confess, sometimes I had that worry too, um, you can think of transitional legitimacy instead then as a framework. And it's a framework that might encompass different theories that operate in different contexts, right? Each theory which might address a more specific kind of ill-ordered society, uh, spe a more specific kind of oppression. Um, post-war, slave-only, patriarchal, settler-colonial, etc. The case that I'll focus on in this talk is the case of structural racism against African-Americans in the United States. And I'll think about what transitional legitimacy requires in that case. Now, of course, this is not to deny that there are other systems of oppression at play in the United States, and not to deny that those other systems of oppression whether it's patriarchy, colonialism, et cetera, may also intersect with anti-Black racism, um, or not even to deny that, of course, there's other um, sorts of racism at work in the United States against other groups. Um, but I use the case of structural racism against African-Americans sort of as a case study to think about what transitional legitimacy might require in this particular case. So the first, thing that I think transitional legitimacy would require in the US is public reaffirmation of the political equality of oppressed groups. Now, legitimacy, regardless of what more concrete theory you employ, democratic or otherwise, is going to require publicity. Right? For a political entity to be legitimate, it must be seen to be legitimate. Now, justice itself also has a publicity condition. For justice to be done, it must also seem to be done. Also think about democracy. If you adopt a democratic theory of legitimacy, then democracy itself requires publicity, right? We need to have transparency in terms of how the democratic organs function, transparency in terms of how voting happens in the state. So regardless of how you understand legitimacy, publicity is going to be important. Now, in the case where you're in an ill-ordered society where there has been past systems of oppression, then what you will need is public recognition and acknowledgement of these past injustices and reaffirmation that's ongoing of political equality. Now, examples of specific concrete measures that might be taken in order to publicly reaffirm political equality include things like truth commissions, official records of past abuses, monuments, memorials, museums, uh, national holidays, educational curricula, changes in political symbols, et cetera. Now you might think, well, look, in the US, some of these things have been done, right? Um, you know, there are holidays, for example, that celebrate uh, Martin Luther King Jr. You know, there's a Smithsonian uh, Museum in the Capitol that is about African-American history, um, et cetera. But, I think that the public reaffirmation of political equality, first in the US, is far from complete. And additionally, insofar as racism still exists, then of course, the public reaffirmation of political equality needs to be ongoing. So think of the ways in which 
public affirmation of political equality is lacking in the United States. So Confederate monuments uh, are still up. Obviously, uh, monuments are being taken down. Um, according to one study that I saw, about 100 were taken down last year, uh, all but one after uh, George Floyd's killing. But there still are 700 some monuments that are still up. Again, I'm not saying whether or not the monuments should be taken down or put in a museum to commemorate history or whatnot. But it's still the case that regardless of what needs to be happened with these monuments, there are these symbols that are publicly uh, denigrating political equality of African-Americans, right? That's an example. Another example is um, the House Resolution 40 that has been um, put forward in Congress um, since 1989. Um, it's, a, it's a resolution that would put forward a truth commission to study slavery, racism, and study whether or not there should be reparations and how reparations should be provided. It's not even a resolution about actually enacting reparations. It's just a resolution to study whether or not reparations should happen and how it might happen. But this resolution, which establishes a kind of truth commission, has never been passed. Right? So that's an example in which um, these kinds of measures that would publicly reaffirm political equality are incomplete in the United States. So this was a statue um, in Baltimore, the Confederate Soldiers and Sailors Monument, and it ultimately it was taken down. But again, of course, there are many other statues like this and monuments that have yet to be taken down or have yet to be reckoned with in terms of their public denigration of political equality. Another measure that needs to be taken um, is the rule of law to guard against racial discrimination. Again, the rule of law is a very minimal requirement for legitimacy. Regardless of what more comprehensive substantive theory of legitimacy you adopt, you're going to need the rule of law. Mass incarceration, racial discrimination in the criminal justice system is a clear and obvious case where the rule of law is being violated. African-Americans are put in jail uh, at a rate six times higher than their white counterparts. Now, of course, mass incarceration also causes a lot of injustices, and this itself qualifies as an injustice. Violating the rule of law itself might qualify as an injustice. But the point that I want to make here is that it's not just an injustice. It also makes the United States illegitimate. Again, if you think the United States is roughly legitimate, but not perfectly just, I think that you're wrong. Um, legitimacy requires, at a most basic level, the rule of law. And racialized mass incarceration violates the rule of law in, blat in, in blatant ways. Another um, measure that would be needed for there to be transitional legitimacy is effective de facto protection of democratic rights. Of course, voter suppression has been something that is increasingly uh, giving um, increasingly taking attention in the media, um, in the news, especially with the last election. Um, but voter suppression laws still exist. Um, restrictions to make voting more difficult, uh, to make absentee ballot more difficult, 
photo identification requirements, proof of citizenship requirements, these kinds of laws disproportionately affect African-Americans, Latinx, Native American, and poor voters, because these groups are more likely to take advantage of early voting absentee balloting. Um, their job schedules might be less flexible, so they let, might be less likely to have photo ID. So these laws, you can think of them as a continuation of laws in during Jim Crow, literary, literacy tests, poll taxes, property ownership requirements that sought to limit voting access for African-Americans. According to the Brennan Center for Justice, there are more than 250 bills in 43 states that seek to tighten voting rules. So voter suppression is very much alive and well. Now, if you think legitimacy requires democracy as I do, then these kinds of voter suppression laws are not just unjust, but they threaten the very legitimacy of the United States. They threaten whether or not the United States government can say that it has a right to rule, period. Not just whether or not it's exercising its right to rule consistently with what its subjects are owed. Another measure that would be required are reparations. Now, reparations, from the perspective of transitional legitimacy, intertwines both backward-looking concerns and forward-looking concerns. Because again, that is sort of the normative point behind transition. And it links to rectification of past injustices and enduring justices with structural transformation so that legitimate political institutions can be realized. Now, reparations for African-Americans need not take the form of individual monetary payments to specific citizens, but they can be conceptualized more broadly in terms of a domestic Marshall Plan. This was, in fact, an analogy that uh, Martin Luther King Jr. made himself, which might include broad-based social policies addressing poverty, housing, employment, education, business loans, etc., other areas that might work to rectify racial inequalities. Thinking about reparations from within a transitional legitimacy lens helps us to avoid certain problems that crop up when we think about reparations just as a measure of corrective justice, another sort of concept that often is used when we're thinking about reparations. Corrective justice is sometimes, not all the times, but sometimes it's understood primarily according to some kind of tort-based, some liability-based model where individuals harm each other and then that entitles victims to compensation. But this kind of tort-based individualized model of corrective justice is difficult to apply towards structural systematic uh, cases of racial oppression that have occurred across generations. There are these large questions about historical responsibility, why uh, descendants of past slave owners, do they owe anything to descendants of past slaves, uh, given that currently they were not responsible themselves for the oppression that happened in the past hundreds of years ago, right? Corrective justice raises these kinds of difficult questions um, when we're thinking about reparations. And maybe my uh, cause some people to think reparations aren't due or shouldn't be enacted. But if we think about reparations, not on this tort-based, liability-based, individual-based model of corrective justice, 
if we think about it as a requirement of transitional legitimacy, then we can sidestep some of these more complicated questions of historical responsibility. Because everybody has good reason to contribute to repairing past injustices, regardless of their complicity or responsibility in perpetuating those injustices, everyone has an interest in living under legitimate political institutions. Stephen Winter put it this way, state redress claims do not assign rectificatory liability to past agents, rather they concern the legitimacy of present political orders. So transitional legitimacy is a way to think about reparations that helps us avoid these kinds of historical individual liability questions that in any case are maybe orthogonal to what is actually needed, right? What is actually needed is how do we actually rectify past injustices to realize a legitimate political order? So in conclusion, when we think about structural racism, I know that we often think about it as an injustice, right? When we go to protests, no justice, no peace, as I showed in that very first slide, is a common refrain. Of course, we need to pay attention to injustice. Of course, we need to pay attention to injustice. But equally important, if, if not a prior demand towards justice, is legitimacy. And we need to recognize why structural racism is not only unjust, but also undermines legitimacy. And when we focus upon the value of legitimacy and we, we look at the theories of legitimacy, we realize that actually they themselves, just like many theories of justice, need to be subject to a non-ideal critique. They need to pay attention to actual circumstances of oppression. And in order for us to think more about what legitimacy requires, how do we move towards legitimacy from within non-ideal ill-order circumstances, a concept of transitional legitimacy will be useful. And it is uh, it can be developed by analogy to transitional justice where there already is good arguments, good concepts at play to think about these difficult cases, although these difficult non-ideal cases, although those theories are primarily focused upon the value of justice, but we need to be also focused on the value of legitimacy. And then in the US, if we think about what does the content of transitional legitimacy require? Now, this is probably familiar to many people. It ought to require public affirmation of everyone's equal political status, rule of law to guard against racial discrimination, dismantling racialized mass incarceration, protection of democratic rights, reparations for past and enduring justices. The, this slate of measures, I think, is probably familiar to people who have been paying attention to racial injustice in the United States. But I think that if we think about transitional legitimacy, we can think about how all these measures are actually linked by the value of legitimacy and not just justice, right? We shouldn't think of the United States as a Western stable democracy that for the most part is legitimate, for the most part has the right to rule. It has its own problems of racism or in colonialism, and that makes it not perfectly just, but at least it is roughly legitimate, right? I don't think we should think about the United States in that context. We should think more seriously about how the very structures and systems of oppression that still are with us and the legacies of past injustices continue to threaten the very legitimacy of the United States, its very right to rule, and not just whether or not it's fully providing for justice for its citizens. Thank you.